to another edition of Chapters. My name's Jim Derrick. On today's program, we speak with author and artist Elaine Mullen. Elaine is a person living in long-term recovery who has an incredible story of some of the most difficult circumstances that life has to offer. And Elaine was kind enough to agree to share her story with us and some of the lessons that she's learned along the way. I am just honored to have Elaine on today's program. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. You know, there was something, Elaine, when I met you that I, you know, I knew why we were meeting, but there was a spark in you and I wanted to know more. And the more I heard of your story mm-hmm. and the more I learned of, of where you'd been in your life, the more I wanted to know about how the heck you got to where you are today. Among Elaine's most amazing accomplishments is the fact that you have written four books and soon to be a fifth book. You are a poet. uh, You're both an author, a poet, and you are an artist. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm going to be 64 in June. And, uh, and I'm very glad I embraced my age because I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't think I'd ever even see 21 uh, because I, I, when you say recovery, I started drinking very young at 13 when I didn't think that I would. Um, but my story is one of, um, someone once called me the comeback kid, yeah. <laughs> an LPN that I know, yeah. um, that um, the recovery is important. I, I grew up in the house, the youngest of six, and uh, there was alcoholism in the house. Um, you know, my mother uh, drank, drank quite a bit, and my father worked a lot. And uh, it could get, it got a little bit ugly. And by 1971, I was really feeling a lot of uh, isolation and, and starting to get a little bit depressed. And then when I turned 13, I discovered alcohol. And although I swore I would never touch it. Uh, immediately it was a problem. Yeah. By the time I was 15, I was trying to stop drinking. People right. were saying, you shouldn't drink. You don't know how to drink. And I agreed with them. I had That's one thing about me is I never had any denial. I knew that I did not know how to drink. And, and, and Laney, as you mentioned uh, before, and I, I want to make sure this is highlighted, um, God rest her soul, but your mother was uh, an alcoholic. Yes. And, and so you were witnessing alcohol abuse in the house you saw the impact of that and even at the young age of 13 you were able to put it together and say my gosh i've got the same problem right i saw it because i could see the change uh, and, and even in all of my uncles and everyone i knew when she ingested alcohol i could see the change like that right um and um and she she was very uh, she suffered also from depression my father was working three jobs she had six children she has seven, but lost one. And I was, I had ADHD long before it was diagnosed. Sure. I was a handful. When I was very young, she would tie me to the tree in the backyard um, because we lived on the water and it was over my head. But I, I, I internalized it and felt, what have I done wrong? Why am I being punished? Right. And I would scream out there. So then she moved me to this tiny little fence, uh, you know, in the, in the middle of the yard in the sun, which I hated. I hate the sun. And I internalized it, and I'm like, what have I done wrong? But what was happening is that my mother, and the thing is, it's just as I could see that alcohol was my problem as it was her her problem, I could see why she drank. She was having trouble sleeping. She had insomnia like I have. Um, she 
we were out in the boonies. She didn't drive. The road wasn't even paved at that time. She was all alone without any support system. Sure. And, and she was just really a prisoner of her time, as was my father, because back then he had to work three jobs. Right. And, and, and I think one of the central parts of your story, Lainey, is that you have never you never portray yourself as a victim, despite mm-hmm. difficult things that have happened to you, to say the least, traumatic things that have happened. Mm-hmm. Being a victim is not how you self-identify. And I think what you're saying here is you have empathy for your mom yes. and know that she was suffering from an illness and self-medicating for circumstances that were beyond her control. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, because actually any you know, redeeming qualities that I have in my strength, I saw in my mother and my faith. Uh, The very first book she ever gave me was uh, a children's Bible. She said, if you're going to read, because I love to read, I was enchanted by books. And she said, if you're going to read, you should read the best book ever printed. And it was the Bible. And I couldn't even read yet when she gave it to me. Um, But I saw a picture of Absalom dangling from the tree from his hair, and I just said, ooh, this looks interesting. And and then when I could read, I saw just how really interesting and fascinating it was. And it was my mother who gave me my faith. She said, you know, people will hurt you, people will betray you, they won't mean to. But she said, God will never let you down. God will always be there for you. And so my mother um, prepared me and for life and taught me some very important lessons. She was a woman of few words, but she made every one of them count. Like one time when when she was punishing me, she said, you know, you don't have to like this. What a wonderful freedom, a lesson that I learned very young, that I didn't have to like unpleasant things. Mm. All I had to do was learn from them, because I think a mistake is a mistake until it becomes a lesson. Um, and and just, you know, try not to keep repeating them, although I often did. Sure. I was a handful. I, I would have tried the patience of Job, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. And, uh, but she, she equipped me um, with her resilience and her strength, and I saw her go through a, a lot, an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And my father, uh, very hardworking and very good morals and everything. And we, there was a lot of fun, and there was a lot of pain. It was a mixture. You know, I grew up with inconsistency, yeah. and I grew comfortable with inconsistency. And that, that's a good thing to, to have. You see some good, and, and I know this must have taken a long time for you to process. Yes. But you are able to celebrate the good and recognize the illness that was yes. present and also recognize the sad little girl. Very much so. One, one of my poems is, There's a Girl I Know, mm. and it's about me. Mm. A lot of my writing is kind of autobiographical, my poetry. Um, I write about almost everything under the sun, but I do write about pain, emotional pain, um, you know, psychiatric pain. And I knew that something was wrong. Um, so you're, you're 13, 14, 15. You're, you're growing into becoming an alcoholic, self-medicating. Yes. You knew you had an awareness to know that this was happening, but at 13, 14, or 15 years old, you don't have the skills to, to, to stop. No, uh, no. And so, so what happens as you, as you grow into a young lady? Well, what happened is I was trying, I tried marijuana to try, because I was trying to escape. I dreaded going home at night because at nighttime is when my mother used to come into my room. Yeah. Um, and, and it was very, they were very ugly encounters. Uh, she would say, what did I ever do to deserve you? Mm. And, and uh, you know, and, and just, she was really, I think she would have been much happier with fewer children, uh, or at least not, not me. I, I, I knew that I was not, uh, let's, let's just say I knew that I was 
not really, really wanted. Um, but I know that in her way, she loved me. And, and I knew from her family, uh, my grandmother was a very cold, distant woman, and my mother was a middle child, that she didn't get an awful lot of love. So it's amazing what she did pass on. My mother and father put all of us first. Sure. You know, and, um, but as she sank further into her alcoholism, and then I began to sink very quickly into mine, things turned ugly. And it was so bad that by 1977, when my father retired in 76, I came home one day and he, he was crying and falling apart at the table. And I said, oh my gosh, my brother has died. And he just, it took him 10 or 15 minutes to just get out the words, I had no idea it was this bad. Mm -hmm. Because I started at age 15 giving it back to my mother. Mm -hmm. I, I had the wherewithal and a very strong sense of self to say that I do not have to tolerate, you know, or take the blame, which I was being blamed for her drinking and her unhappiness and her situation. And and that is a hallmark, uh, you know, that goes hand in hand with sure. alcoholism. Yeah. It was her disease, you know, and and thank God I had, and it was because she gave it to me in, in the gift of the Bible, and she was very strong. I had the wherewithal to say, wait a minute, this is where your responsibility ends and my responsibility ends, and I do not have to take credit for your poor choices. And yes, yes, I've been a handful, and I, I do have, it wasn't called ADHD, mm -hmm. but I had a hard time sitting still. My father would say, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know, but I wish someone would tell me. Mm -hmm. I, I was very depressed. It was extreme. Uh, one of my poems in my new book is called Two. I was told you are too emotional, you're too sensitive, you're too loud, you're too this, you're too that. And it took me years to realize that, no, I am just very, very emotional, very sensitive. And I was not the only one in my family that was that way. And, um, and finally, what happened at 18, I had just graduated from high school, and the drinking age was lowered. I went out with some friends to celebrate, and this was a turning point of my whole life. We were hit by a drunk driver. This um, is at 18 years old, 18, down yeah. on the South Shore? Yep, yep, right down by Nantasket. Yep. And my head and my neck and shoulder like almost went through the passenger window. And I, I, I am lucky to be alive. I have been told that many times. The injuries that I sustained were inside. It was a closed head wound. But I had a concussion. I was uncon unconscious for hours. And back in the day, they didn't, you know, they, I don't know what they did, but I don't remember anything of the accident. And I walked around for weeks, and it felt like my brain was crashing against the mm -hmm. sides of my skull. And in fact, you had suffered a traumatic brain injury. I had suffered a traumatic brain mm -hmm. injury. They and broken it. your neck. And I, I had to have my neck broken. It was whiplash, they called oh. it. They didn't know until 32 years later how severely my discs were damaged, and I lived a life of chronic pain. And I know this, but for our listeners, you live with that chronic pain and the um, cir and the consequences of that accident today. Yes, I do. Yeah, it, it yeah. Changed. And so interesting that, ironic that you're hit by a drunk driver, yes. having you were you were a full blown alcoholic at that point. Mm -hmm. Your mom's an alcoholic. Alcohol has played such an awful but important part in your life. And ironically, just by circumstance, you happen to be hit by a drunk driver. Drunk driver yes. um, what, as you come to Laney as a young woman then, 
you know, what's going through your mind? You're already suffering from depression, anxiety. You've been traumatized from abuse. You, yeah. You've lived a difficult life. What's going through your mind at that point? Well, I, I started saying, you know, did I murder someone in a former life? How did I kick you off so badly, God, that you have just, you know, abandoned me? And did I deserve this? And why, 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 why? And anger and rage. I started drinking more, but it dawned on me very quickly, even then, that I knew because I, as I said, I was trying to stop drinking. I said, you know, the only difference between myself and the, and the young man that hit me, as I said, is that he had a car. If I save enough money, I didn't have a car because I drank every penny, you know, that I earned. I said, we, we could have switched roles. I could have hit him. Or that is well within the realm of possibility because when I drank, all bets were off. And I said... I have to stop drinking because I could never live with myself if I hit someone else and caused them this much pain. Mm. And I didn't sue them. But my father said, don't sue him. You'll be tied to him for life. And I didn't. But it, the injury did not go away. My neck was never the same. Um, my headaches, my migraines, which I had had, took on horrendous proportion. I had hemiplegic migraines, which resemble strokes, but they were not diagnosed until mm. like 40 years later. Mm. Um, and, um, and I said, you know, I really have to stop drinking. And it wasn't until I was 21, 1980, that I finally, in the fall of 1979, I started one time going through the DTs and hallucinating um, on, a, on a Sunday because I'd run out of alcohol. And, and when I realized that I was like hallucinating, I said, God, please, mm. please, Jesus, please help me stop. Mm. And I said, I, I, I'm headed towards the person, that I'm becoming the very thing that I don't want to be. I want to remind everybody I'm speaking with Elaine Mullen. Elaine is both an author, an artist, and a woman living in long-term recovery. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find the podcast at wfpr.fm. Click on the past shows, and you'll see a link to Chapters Radio, which is where our podcasts are held. I am speaking with Elaine Mullen. We're in the middle of her story talking about her at about the age of 21, making a decision to stop drinking. Mm. Now, Laney, you know, you had just said that you said, my God, I've got to stop this. And yes. you'd suffered the DTs. So you mm -hmm. realized that you were, you were addicted to alcohol. You knew that. That wasn't yeah. a question since you'd been 13. Mm. But it's interesting to me that living with the results of a traumatic brain injury at that young age and, cr and severe pain, yes. including the migraines, mm. um, including having your neck broken, mm. including all of the injuries you'd suffered, that seems like a time when someone would say, you know what, I'm not going to stop drinking. Yes, yeah. It, so what, what is the flip? What, what flipped the switch? What flipped the switch was the faith that I had been given when I realized, and, and because I had been praying, and I know other people had been praying for me, that I came to, my blackouts lasted, day, I came, lasted days, I came to in the, the lobby you know, of, of my work, and uh, the thought occurred to me, and it had not been there before, and I know all the saints you know, put it there, that maybe it doesn't have to be this way. 
because I was just waiting for the end. I was just hoping to die. I was suicidal, and I was just like, I can't stand. You know, I would wake up at 3 in the morning, and I'd see the clock flipping on the, the dial, and I'm like, my God, tomorrow is coming, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. And on that day, the thought occurred to me, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. And I ran out to a phone booth, and I got the yellow pages, and I went right past AA Central Services, but I saw this clinic, alcohol clinic without walls. And I said, aha, they can't lock me up, because I knew I was crazy. And I made an appointment. I, I called the woman, and I said, oh, you know, I'm trying to stop drinking, and I, and I can't. And she said, well, can you go until Friday without drinking and then come in and see us? And I said, oh, I could never do that. I could never go four days without a drink. You know, I'll never make it until Friday. She said, it's Wednesday, dear. Oh, my. And I'm like, Ugh. And she gave me the address, and I went there. And I have not had a drink since that day. Wow. It was April 9th of 1980. And within three months, they told me about AA, you know, the, the woman there, because she mm -hmm. was not an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And she said, you really need to hear it from other alcoholics. Mm -hmm. Peer support, right there it began. Yeah. You know, and, and that made all the difference in my life. And, and it's amazing to me that at that young age, yes. back at a time before it was, I don't want to say fashionable, but I guess so, for yes. young people to be in the, in the halls of AA, yes. you saw this gift right in front of you and said, yes. I'm, I'm going to grab onto that. Yes. And I do want to point people to um, Laney's published work so far, which includes four books. And Laney's an amazing poet, an amazing poet. And I'd love you to go on to Amazon.com, look up Elaine Mullen, M-U-L-L-E-N, and you will find... Uh, a series of books, which I have yet to read, but Lainey shared with me much of her poetry. All four of these books include just amazing poems. You have over 590 poems currently published. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yes. I had um, 592 poems that I wrote, and then 105 of them were lost by my publisher. But I have since written uh, another book. So I have written over like 650 poems, but I would say at least... 490 of them are published. Lainey, would you be willing to share a poem with us that might illustrate a little bit about what you were going through during this period of time as a 21-year-old young woman? Sure, sure. The name of this poem is Daymare. Uh, it's uh, a nightmare that, you know, yeah, persists 24-7. Reaching a different isolated place, no directions to find my way back, scorched landscape, Empties litter the ground. Bodies, offerings to the god Dionysus. Former somebodies now belonging to Bacchus. Somebody's father, mother, lover, sister, brother, child. Remnants of what they were, only remnants. Ghosts of former selves litter the ground. Striving but forgetting my purpose in life, walked down this road approached the altar of sacrifice, growing dimmer, more ominous, unspeakably close. Merciful darkness, muting this horrendous of my own making, no waking up from this one, until, closer to the edge and kneeling before the abyss of total hopelessness, I notice, flickering from a muted source, dim illumination, lending clarity on what I don't want to see. A little light in all this darkness, a little warmth in all this cold, highlighting a way out of the miasma. Afraid of another step, 
but terrified of standing still. No directions, only chance. A venture of belief and footstep of hope is taken when there is no longer any strength left to go forward. Blindly, I am led by hands I do not recognize backwards in a victorious retreat. Wow. The title of that poem is Daymare, and that can be found in one of Elaine Mullen's books uh, called Parnassus Two, yes. a collection of unusual poetry. Elaine, I was so drawn to the imagery in that, and here you are as a 21-year-old young woman having surrendered to the yes. disease of alcoholism and walk, walking into your first AA meeting, and there's a glimmer of light that you don't want to see. That I don't want to see. And yet you're drawn to it. Yes, I'm drawn to it. I was, uh, I'm a very dichotomous person, and I was like drawn to it. I'm like, this is my only hope. If this doesn't work, I'm doomed. I have nowhere else to go uh, because I, I had burned all my bridges. Um, be, you know, even I wasn't hanging around with anyone. And I was drawn to AA, and I believed every word they said, but then I also had that side where I was sure everyone was faking, and they were, you know, no one could be sober. Like, I saw people with almost 20 years. I'm like, no one could be sober that long. I was, it was dim illumination on what I didn't want to see of my life and what I didn't want to see because I knew it was it would be impossible for me. And I told them, they said, just believe, you know, go one day without a drink and believe that you can do it. I said, I can't believe. And they said, well, believe that we believe. Wow. And that's what made all the difference. Fear dominated my life. And I write about fear. And you didn't want to take that step. Yeah, I didn't want to but take that step. But you felt compelled step. to anyway. I felt compelled to. And I prayed, I prayed to God, my higher power, before I even knew what it was called. And I just said, please, if I don't, if I don't do this, then I'm going to, the abyss is waiting. It's sucking me down every more and more. Long after I thought I had nothing more to give, it was still finding things mm -hmm. to take. My alcoholism, my self-respect, my word, everything, my dignity, my integrity, it was all gone. Nothing meant anything to anyone else and nothing meant anything to me. And I'm like, this, this is my only chance. Wow. So despite my fear, I jumped, my fear, I jumped in with both feet. I know that the story uh, gets more complicated from there and more yes. difficult as well. Yes. Because as you find sobriety, you also have some other diagnoses that come up. Yes, yes. In 1986, I had um, a miscarriage. And it was, uh, and I don't even know the terminology for it. it uh, I am bisexual, uh, but it was an ectopic or an ectopic yep. Yep. pregnancy. Ectopic pregnancy. Um, and I also had polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I never told my family to this day doesn't even know about this, and I never even spoke about it, except I referenced it in one of my poems, um, saying I wish I were a poet is the name of the poem. Um, but um, I, I had a miscarriage, and half of my insides fell out, uh, the lining of my, too much information about my uterus. And so I had to have a total hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. And before they started the hormones uh, and everything, um, you know, so I had this, this miscarriage, which was devastating. Yeah. And because I, I had dreams of marrying and the white picket fence, but I was drawn to women and men, and that also added to my feeling like, sure. like a freak at the time. Sure. And, um, but what happened is I, it was almost like postpartum, a severe depression, and that was my one and only attempt. I, I tried to kill myself, mm. um, half-hearted. 
Um, but nonetheless, but I threw myself down this huge flight of stairs uh, in a parking garage, a, a spiral staircase. If I had ever made it even halfway down uh, or fell out the side of the rails, I would have been dead. And I was all bloody, and I told my boss, and I went to the hospital. I, I told her, I said, I need to go somewhere. I'm, mm-hmm. I just tried to kill myself. And, uh, and I was diagnosed with clinical depression for five years. And then I was diagnosed as a bipolar. And I knew, and I had anxiety, and I had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, if only from the accident, but other things as well um, that went on. Um, you know, just my mother and I really did, did not get along. Uh, no one saw how bad it was. My father saw some of it, but he had no idea. And uh, it was so bad that years later, when... After my father had died and we were having breakfast, my mother said, you know, Elaine, it's a good thing we both stopped drinking or we, we would have killed each other right. by now. And, then, and I just said, I know, Ma. And that was her amend and that was my amend. Mm. So that will give you an idea of how, how bad it was. And I'm not here to talk about her because any strength I ever inherited was from her and sure. my father. Mm. And, and she died with 22 years of sobriety. She got sober two years after I did without having to go to AA. But I, I, uh, I had the diagnosis of bipolar, uh, first clinical depression. I said, I, that's it, my life is over. And I was still working. I had a very good job at Bank of Boston and then Fleet Bank. I was in telecommunications. I was an operations supervisor and then a project manager. I had my own office at First National Bank of Boston with a staff of 17, which is very unusual for a woman back then without sure. a degree yet. sure. And I was majoring in business, but I was terrible at it, so I switched to psychology, um, which I never finished my undergrad, but that's a dream. And I did very well, um, which was surprising because my mother always told me I was stupid, but uh, my GPA was 3.97. <laughs> and I was. <laughs> <laughs> you could do a lot of math for me, and you ain't going to come up with anything over three. So, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. I, I was uh, inducted into the Alpha Sigma Lambda uh, Honor Society, and I didn't realize with that I probably could have gotten a, a scholarship right. somewhere. I was paying my own way through and working full time and commuting. And, 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 and but. I just fell apart, and I had one good psychiatrist and then a very bad one, and then I went to an even worse one. But the years um, were full of just so much love from my support system, dear friends that I'd known for years that went to any lengths to pass on the message, and a sponsor who was wonderful. I had her for 20 years, Jean, who taught me, you know, that, you know, Elaine, you know, you can just be quiet for your first year here. You've got nothing we need to hear. She cut me off at the knees all the time, and she was tough as nails, but she also had a sense of humor. In AA, she meant you, you didn't have anything to add at that point. Yeah, yeah. You're a neophyte. Yes, yes. yes. She said, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, when I was going to speak for the first time, I said, oh, I haven't got much to share. My story isn't that interesting. She said, you'll, you'll be lucky if you even help yourself. Shut up and get up there. <laughs> you know, and... Um, but they made me realize that the world did not revolve around me and that I had to look for the positive. And that's what I began to do. I realized that the negatives that I had in my faith, the Bible and, and my mother and my you know, people that I saw, they were taking a huge negative and a lot of negatives 
and making a positive out of it. That everything that, you know, like two weeks ago when we were in the car, I said, you know, there are two diamonds sitting in this truck, Jim, you and I. And the things that refined us and polished us and made us sparkle so much are the things we cursed God for. I'm talking primarily about myself here. I hope you don't mind my sharing that. And and I realized that, you know, I loved to read and I loved to write. And I had started writing my poetry when I was 13. I was journaling and it was poetry. And a lot of times they, they don't rhyme, um, but a lot of times they do. And I, and I pour my heart and my soul into my writing. And I didn't really start doing a lot of it until... Early retirement was recommended in 1992, and I declined it. I had a work ethic, uh, Irish stubborn. Right. No, 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 no. Yeah. I waited a year, and then finally, I was so depressed that my father had to fill out the forms for me, and it was immediately approved. To okay. for, forms for 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 um, SSDI, mm-hmm. you know, for disability. Because the migraines at that time, I'd already had numerous operations for neurogenic organs. I've just had my 25th operation. I did finally have the spinal fusion to replace You just said that casually, Laney, but um, the accident, which uh, was so transformative um, in so many ways, bad, and as we'll find out, good. Yes. Um, That accident uh, caused you to have 20... Five surgeries? I had 25 surgeries in my life so far. 14 of them were directly related to the accident. Okay, and then we had a miscarriage and, and, and all the depression uh, that came after uh, that. And, um, and you are still writing. So could you share with us another poem? Oh, sure. The name of this poem is called Tough Love. And um, I, I wrote it shortly after joining your group. Um, you know, the, the meeting that we had, Road to Recovery. Right. And um, that group is a uh, 12-step group where we use the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to provide us with a design for living. And, and us would be people that are uh, suffering from codependency, who have a loved one who is uh, suffering from substance use disorder, and we find ourselves caught up in the mire of codependency. And here it is, tough love. Eventually, the insanity can be interrupted when one travels from heartbreaking to tolerant though vile the love and trust once so fulfilling but now corrupted i no longer forsake all else for or consider so worthwhile my forgotten look of gladness which always accompanied seeing your face was replaced by pity anger and sadness repeatedly and now permanently taking its place more heartbreaking than fear, resentment, or discontent. Who can budget the cost of betrayal and unrest, like the risk of always being in arrears or too late in paying the rent? True detachment, the heart once owned, has been repossessed. Now responding from a more remote but wiser state of mind, no longer hoping for a different situation, Bittersweet acceptance and reality can be so unkind. But disconnecting with indifference is better than hate and trepidation. Such is the process of truly letting go, the illusion of control and incessant need to know. Empty promises finally taking their toll. You no longer hold the keys to my happiness, heart, and soul. 
I forgive myself for hating your disease more than you. Addiction is caving to craving what I no longer choose to do. We both have too much to lose and lives to lead. Mine is calling me. Yours is also beckoning, however tragically. But mine finally is promising. I wish to be all I can be. Sadly, you are in the way. Yet concerning the direction of my life, I have the final say. Finding my power is not a bottomless reserve. Perhaps it is just as well. My recovery is no longer dependent upon yours. Only the addicted abandon a chance at heaven in favor of clinging to hell. Whether addicted to a substance, person, or behaviors, better to love from a distance than abhor too closely. A much safer strategy for those in recovery. That is a poem from poet Elaine Mullen, and the name of that poet poem was Tough Love. And uh, Elaine, you wrote that poem clearly about um, codependency, and, and it really resonates with me. And here you are as a young woman in her, in her 20s, suffering from traumatic brain injury, chronic pain, uh, a horrific miscarriage, which included surgery, uh, now a new diagnosis of bipolar uh, and clinical depression. What's interesting to me is you're able to compartmentalize and almost run parallel lanes. At the same time, you're processing the fact that you're an alcoholic in new recovery and your mom, who you had been had a codependent relationship with, you are wrestling with, grappling with, and coming to terms with the fact that it was an illness that she had. It is an illness that she had, mm-hmm. and that um, you could be angry with her and love her. Yes, you could be uh, sad about your past mm-hmm. and suffering from abuse and grateful. Yes. For the lessons that she gave you. And that word and to me is so important for people that are in recovery. It's something that I've only recently at 61, I think I've known for three or four years I've incorporated in my life. I'm not either happy or sad. I can be both at the same time. And I just find it so incredibly inspiring to hear your words uh, of grace and forgiveness and love and pain all in one poem. Mm. It, It really magnifies that that thought that you can be both you can be yes yes it, it's and another one of my poems is um all or nothing uh, i have, i had called it black or white and then i said well i don't want anyone to think it's about racial terms or anything like that i um but it's that being comfortable in the gray area and also like i said i am dichotomous i can be both mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i can be angry and yet also grateful i can be in in tremendous pain um but then also uh see some good you know it makes me appreciate a beautiful day all the more i want to remind everybody we are speaking with elaine mullen m-u-l-l-e-n and i give you that spelling because she is a published author a poet with currently four books on amazon she has a fifth that's about to be published um she's also an artist and frankly, just an inspirational friend. Uh, My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast here at WFPR 102.9 FM on the website. Go to WFPR.FM, click on Past Shows, and go to the Chapters Radio program 
link. Um, Lainey, uh, hard to believe, but your story is going to get more complicated. Yes. Um, and and instruct, instructive and inspirational. So you're now at a point where you've got this diagnosis. And, and what starts to happen from from there? Well, what happened um, is that um, after a long period of time, um, my medication started not working so well. And um, and then what happened is I was diagnosed the first time with uh, cancer. Now, it was only basal cell carcinoma, but it was not caught in time. And how old were you at this point? This was in uh, 2017. So I was... Um, I was like what fifty eight. Yeah, so we had we had moved along. You had so yeah. during that that time between your twenties and your fifties, you were managing your your mental health diagnosis, yes, and you yeah. were on disability, yes. um, but you were managing. Yes, and yes. so you you come up to to two thousand seventeen with this diagnosis of what seemed like to be minor. Yes, cancer at the time. Very minor minor cancer, and uh, and so then that went on, and uh, that was forty three stitches and everything. But then um, in two thousand eleven, I contracted. Uh, C. diff, and then from a pick line, I ended up having pleurisy and um, very bad scarring in my lungs that was found in 2006. Mm. And what happened is then in 2018, I developed uh, costochondritis, which is a very bad inflammation, very painful inflammation of the lungs. And I was moved to advanced care planning, end-of-life care, wow. uh, when I was never even on palliative, and I was denied uh, VNA services, and I was denied hospice. And psychologically, I wasn't doing well, and neither was I doing well physically. And what happened is I was put on a medication. I had no therapist at the time either. They had left, and I, the person that was going to take me on couldn't. And what happened is I was put on a very benign medication, but it had very bad side effects for me, suicidal ideations. I had two of them, and then I had a third one, and my doctor who should have stopped it sooner, but I'm not blaming her, uh, then said, okay, we'll stop that and start this new medication, which I didn't get until Thursday or Friday. And then when I saw it and I saw that it was called something other than what she called it, I said, oh, no, I've already had trouble with this. So I said, I'm not going to take it. I was terrified of another suicidal ideation. And what happened is four or five days, that was like Friday. So I had gone, I'd stopped the other medication on a Wednesday, and by Monday, I, I woke up and I was going to do this or that. I was already psychotic. And what happened, and I will never to this day, or I haven't to this day, remembered what I was thinking of. I, was, I lost consciousness. I lost train of thought. And I had a psychotic episode where I was like outside my body. I had disassociated before when I was young, but not really And to, and to set extent. this up, at this point, you're living alone. I'm living alone. In an apartment. In an apartment. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And what happened is I, and I don't even know in what room I, I had the uh, cigarette lighter for candles. I set my, my sheets on my bed on fire. And then I tried to set my laundry basket on fire, but I didn't think it took. And then I set my curtains on fire. But you don't remember actually doing that. No, it was like watching someone no. else. I don't remember what, I knew I was having a panic attack, a terrible panic before it happened. And I vaguely recall calling my old church and saying, help, help. Yep. I wasn't even a member there anymore. And then the next thing I know, I'm standing in, in my living room, 
and the black smoke is pouring up from my curtains and the flames, and I thought of my neighbor, you know, Marty, and, and, and you know, Kathy on the other side of me. I'm like, oh, my God, they have oxygen. My mother had oxygen. I said, this, this will explode. So I'm running in, in and out of the halls, banging on my doors, my neighbor's doors, telling them to leave, you know, to get out. I, I, I did have my cell phone. I called zero. I don't remember. And uh, what happened is that I was charged. Well, everyone got out safely, but it was very terrifying. And you got out. And I got out. Yeah. I inhaled an awful lot of smoke. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long I was in that apartment, mm-hmm. but my O2 uh, uh, was 80. Yeah, you had it, suffered. Which yeah. is, smoke yeah. Smoke inhalation, yeah. Severe, very dangerous. Very severe. Yeah. Very severe. And um, I was discharged the next day from the hospital to a psychiatric unit in Boston, Arbor HRI, and then I went to to court, and they were charging me with arson with a a sentence of 20 years. Wow. So here you are. You've suffered. um, You've been through a lot in your life. Yes. And, um, boy, I can only imagine that feeling. You know, you're charged with arson. you're You're facing 20 years. What was your instinct to jump up and down and say, "Look, guys, this was out of my control"? What what, what was what were you going through your mind when that? I I don't really I I was incompetent for like six months, but I remember, I remember when I got to when I got to Worcester Recovery Center and Hospital. If I wasn't suicidal before, and I wasn't, but maybe I was. I don't know. I can't remember. I began to be suicidal there. I'm like, oh my god, right? <laughs> and it came to me. I prayed and I said, God. And the words came to me, I am responsible. In AA, we say, I am responsible for the hand of AA to always be there. For that, I am responsible. But I have always been in the steps. And I've been a dual recovery anonymous too, but not as intensely as I was about to become. But I said, I am responsible. If nothing else, my parents did not teach me to be a coward or to blame or, you know, I own this. I recall all I remember saying is I own this. I admit it. I said, I, I did this. I don't know why. And I, I was arrested and Mirandized um, twice in the same day. I went to Arbor HRI. I was discharged to the streets. I was homeless. I was about to turn 60. I had nothing, nothing. I had two socks to my name, which I keep as mementos. That's all that I have in my old life. And um, but I said, I will. I, I just gave it to God, and I said, God, just carry me. I mean, really, Lainey, this this is a moment where I, I get goosebumps hearing this story, um, I, trying to empathize, trying to imagine myself in your shoes. Yeah. And unfortunately, you didn't have shoes. You had two socks. Yeah. So, I mean, you're literally, everything's gone up in smoke, all of your worldly possessions. Um, mm-hmm. You're not even sure what really happened to you, except that you are taking responsibility for it. Yes. Um, and here you are in the street. What what do you do from there? Well, um, I, to be honest with you, and I wasn't thinking right. Um, they said for my discharge planning that I had an appointment with my therapist. I found out that she didn't even know I had been discharged. Um, and I went to get some prescriptions, and they said that they had gotten a, reserved a room for me. I said, I want to have one night's sleep before I turn myself in. Yep. And so uh, it wasn't where it was supposed to be, but the cab brought me out, Sharon. So I called the police department that Friday. I said, look, I need to finish being arrested. They're like, what? I'm like, I need to be Mirandized. They're like, oh, well, call back tomorrow. I'm like, oh, my God. So I 
call back the next day. And I said, listen, my name is Elaine Mullen, and I did this, and I need to be Mirandized. And they're like, well, who was the, I don't know what they were saying, detective or something. I'm like, I have no idea, yeah. So I said, listen, this is where I am. I'm at the Best Western, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to Harvard, Vanguard, to get a prescription, and then I'm going to be bringing myself, turning myself in. And so then I, when the cab pulled up, I get up, I get in the back seat, shut the door, and then boom, it's like, okay, the police are surrounding with guns drawn, and I'm like, oh, my God. And the cab driver says, what What the hell did you do? Yeah. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. I'm like, oh. So they, you know, I went very, very quietly, very willingly, and they were wonderful. They fingerprinted me, and I'm scared, you know what, and uh, took my photo, and, and I, I was 109 pounds, I mean, I was 173 pounds in 2019, but I was down to 109 pounds, sick as a dog, low sodium. I looked like a skeleton, and I had like, like pants that were all torn, and just a shirt that was it, and socks, and and a, a bag that they had given me from, and by that time some some crummy sneakers, and because um, they had stolen what little clothes I had in Arbor HRI, I sat for three days in a Johnny and a pair of socks, and um, so then they called Weymouth Police, who came and Mirandized me and asked me how I liked my coffee. They were very nice, and then I went. Uh, I was in holding. I went to the Quincy District Court, and the long and short of it is, is that I was hospitalized at Worcester Recovery Center and Hospital for 17 months on top of the month at Arbor HRI. I was found not criminally competent to stand trial until like December, you know, the end of November, December of 2000. So for that 17-month period, you have this charge hanging over your head in 20 years. It took three years that charge was hanging three, over Three years head. that that charge is hanging over your head yes. as somebody who's suffering already with mental illness, yes. who's somebody suffering with chronic pain and everything else you've had. Yes. Um, what sustained you during that period of time? Here you are hospitalized. Yes. It's not a pleasant environment. How do you cope with that stress and anxiety and fear? Well, especially on a forensic unit, when people there, when they say, oh, well, the worst of the worst are here, I didn't know what that was. I was like a deer in the headlights. I had to find out that many people who killed more than once. And here I am, you know, amazingly, and this is this is due to God. I just said, God, please. You know, I'm, I'm screaming at the toilet to stop flushing because it was flushing all the time. Every time I even went near it, I'm like, ah, and not sleeping. And yet... It was like I realized that I had come once again that close to death. I barely, even when I was at Arbor HRI, I fainted taking a shower and my oxygen was still, it was 82. I mean, that's how low. I should never have been, I should have been in a hospital, you know. They were going to put me in intensive care. But when I said, I, I do recall saying at one point that this is not God's will. This, this was my fault. And that's when they just discharged me. I should have been inpatient in a hospital and done something for my lungs. I, I was rehabilitating physically more than just mentally, both of it. I needed to be there for the 17 months. But then I was finally found competent. But what sustained me was my God, my faith, and my peers. That's when I discovered, because I had been living receiving support, peer support in AA all my life. And I said, and I looked to the people around me who, believe it or not, were some of 
we were all fighting like cats and dogs, some of us in the beginning. But within a month or two, you know, we're playing pool and we're talking and we're, you know, bumming money for canteen, you know, and this and that, although I had nothing. No one to visit me the entire time I was there. I didn't want to reach out to my, my family. Um, I had nothing. I had, I managed to have a debit card, and that was it. And then I got privileges. I moved to a continuing care unit, and I started really, uh, you know, a self-determined care plan, you know. Um, I, I picked the groups that I wanted to go to. I went to Dual Recovery Anonymous. I went to Recovery Dialogue, and I met some wonderful people there that knew people that I had known in Dual Recovery Anonymous, and they had AA meetings. And I'm still friends with a lot of them to this day. It was like a new lease on life. Believe it or not, in the courtyard, and I have a hard time doing it, but I love to dance. I was dancing, and the staff on the forensic unit had quite a sense of humor. I found myself laughing, even though I was scared to death, petrified, and especially when I had to go to superior court. You know, I'm like, when I realized that mine was not just a misdemeanor, but a felony, and they were looking for the maximum sentence, you know, when my, I asked my attorney, they didn't even set me out. She, I said, well, what should I, what should I consider if they do? She says, well, at the least 50, and she wasn't talking dollars, she was talking 50,000 minimum. And they didn't set bail. They, they didn't. They just didn't set it because they said you admitted to it. It wasn't that it was too high that they weren't going to set it. They just agreed that, you know, they were finding me already. They right. moved it to the district level where I would have only maybe had to serve ten years if they were willing to cut it in half, which was like progress. Yeah. And I was thrilled for even that. Um, and. Um, but I actually, um, and I was never involved with the Department of Mental Health, but my case manager, when he met me in December and January 2018 and 19, he's like, you treat this place like a hotel. They were allowing me to take the cab and go to Everyday mm -hmm. Miracles. Mm -hmm. I was walking down to Shrewsbury and going to church. I had independent passes. So in a way, you had a new lease. Yes. But you had this charge hanging over your head. Yes. Um, but here you are dance I, I find the metaphor and just the optics to be incredible here you are dancing <laughs> in the joy of this newfound lease yes with um, as you said community and peer support yes in ways that you hadn't had it before right and we could go uh, there's a show about dual recovery anonymous on my safe radio podcast which um, anyone's welcome to go to the same site wfpr.fm click on past shows and look at the safe coalition uh, podcast site and uh, dual recovery you'll see it there but DRA you've got this new system of supports peer mm -hmm. supports you've got AA you've a been sober yeah. um, you, you've come to grips as a young woman you started to and you've developed that thought that your mom wasn't all bad yeah. uh, so you've got you've got all of these amazing things going on and and here you are yet again dancing and facing criminal charges yes terrified and joyful yes, yes all in the same moment which is so amazing to me um i do want to remind everybody we're speaking with author elaine mullen who has an incredible story as you've heard about uh, perseverance resilience and evolution in her life elaine has written four wonderful books soon to be a fifth of published poetry and uh, elaine mullen m-u-l-l-e-n -M -E available on in both um print uh, available on Kindle and available audio on Amazon.com. So, Elaine, 
The day of reckoning is fast approaching. Yes. And you are going to have to appear in front of a judge, black mm-hmm. robes, on your own. Again, yes. you're not getting visitors. You, no. you've, you've let no one know. You don't want to be visited. Yeah. So I assume you go to court alone. Yes. Right? I, yes. And and now we have a day of reckoning. Yes. And this was, uh, I, I had gone to court nine times. Yeah. Okay. And um, so finally on, on D-Day, I went and my attorney, she said, um, she said, you know, of course the, you know, prosecution is going to ask for the maximum sentence. They have to. She said, but I think, she said that we have a chance, we have a chance mm-hmm. um, of, of it being dismissed. I want to go for it. And so I trusted her. Now, this was in April of uh, 2021. So this is three years after, after you know, almost three years after the incident. And um, so I went, and so I'm sitting there. We were doing it via Zoom. And so the... The prosecution is making their closing arguments. Apparently, I think it was like a five alarm, five alarm fire or something. Yeah, and, it's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they had to vacate a building of seventy-five units, and I, I will be for the rest of my life trying to make. We've talked, trying to make peace with that. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, it, it bothers me very much. It was, it was a terrifying day, what I can recall of it, uh, and then I even forgot it and. Uh, it breaks my 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 heart, um, but I I share it uh, because my pride would have me bury it. But it may help someone. You never know where you will end up. You just those word that word yet in a a is you are eligible to, and um, so the prosecution is making their closing arguments, and I'm sitting there, and I realize I also have anxiety, very bad generalized anxiety disorder. I realize that I'm not breathing. I'm like. You know, I'm like, and so he says, okay, so, Your Honor, I'm asking for the maximum sentence here. And then my attorney just got up, and the judge is looking at all the papers and everything, and I had been living in a group living environment, so I had a knapsack and a rain pouch, and I was all set to hit the streets, terrified. And the, the judge, he dismissed the charges. He found me not guilty by reason of insanity because of my extensive history with, with trauma. And, and the head injury and the medication, and because I had called for help, and I didn't have a therapist, and and I fell through the cracks, and I was denied, you know, and it was so against my character. It was my first charge. I had only gotten one speeding ticket my my whole life. But you stood in front of that court, doing I, something that you really, as a young girl, started doing, which is owning what you owned. Yes. And saying and, and, and literally saying to the court, here I am. Yes, I own this. It's just such a powerful story and, and heartbreaking at the same time as someone who cares about you. Thank you. And as someone who can hear the grace and the courage from the time you were a little, little girl. It's just breathtaking. But to have this optic of somebody who says, you know what, I'm not a victim. Yes, there are things that happened to me that are terrible, and I'm not denying that. And here's that word again. And there were good things that were happening at the same time. I'm going to face what I've done, acknowledge the fact that there's reasons why it happened, but I'm not going to put those reasons. I'm not going to let those try to blot out what happened. Right. It's a really fine point, but such an important point. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's the angle 
that you approach life mm. from that is that makes you so attractive as a person and so inspirational because again it's just switching that angle and saying you know i have a choice here yeah. i can either take the angle that says eh look i'm a victim yeah i haven't been treated properly i've got the proof which clearly you did you're already on disability you lived a lifetime of pain mm. and uh trauma and um had a a mental health diagnosis and the treatment wasn't proper and to stand in front of a judge and have a judge look at you and say no I hear you I see you Mm. and in context we can't find you guilty the law won't permit it right what what did that feel like well just before when I before I realized I had stopped breathing and I shared this with you I just said God it wasn't oh get me out of this he said it was like I just said God whatever it is carry me through this because I'm like you know the prosecution is mounting a very good case here <laughs> and right. I'm like you know I, I I just said God carry me through this and when he said we find I find you not guilty yeah. by reason of insanity that's why I, I was like <sighs> yeah. all I all I said is thank you God again thank you for carrying me when I when I doubted you and this and that and everything else. Thank you for you are the only one, like my mother said, you are the only one who's always, always been there. Can you summarize mm-hmm. for us, for the listener, what the central messages are that you've taken from over sixty years mm-hmm. of a life that has had more than its share of trauma? Mm. Well, I I have written a lot of quotes, and I'm trying to think there's two that come to mind. Because one of one of my poems here, a trauma or it pains me to say, is that it all comes down to attitude and perspective. And a mistake is a mistake until it becomes a lesson. Nothing is wasted in the mind of an optimist. A mistake is a mistake. Until it becomes a lesson, nothing is wasted in the mind of an optimist. I can't think of better words, and those are the words of a poet. Again, it's Elaine Mullen, M-U-L-L-E-N, author. Find her on Amazon.com. We're up against the hour now, so we will be back with part two next week of my interview with Elaine Mullen. And so for our guest, Laney Mullen, my name's Jim Derrick, saying thanks for listening to Chapters. And we'll see you next week.